that you remain standing for the reading from God's Word. Well, we'll now open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. We're making our way through uh, this Gospel. And uh, if you're visiting, just know, know that what our practice is to select a Bible book and to uh, march through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, reading it uh, from the pulpit and uh, explaining it from the pulpit, hopefully uh, making some sense of it, how this applies to our lives, what we are to believe, what God wants us to believe, and what God wants us to, to, to do, what to practice. And uh, so that brings us to Matthew 24, our text, verses 45 through 51. Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. You have that look up and I'll commence reading. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Beloved, all flesh is as grass, its beauty is as the flower of the field, the grass withers, and its flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. That was just read to you, the Word of God. And by God's help, it will be preached. Please have a seat. Most of us are working people. We have something to do, whether at home or in the classroom. Some of us have occupations that take us out of the home, in the office, in the field. Many, many of our the jobs that we take on already have a job description, and people will let you know what that job entails. If you like it, uh, and uh, if they like you, and then there's a handshake, and there's a job offer, and you begin work. Every once in a while, you have the liberty to describe the work that you want to do. Uh, there's just been a couple of times where I, I've had that, that opportunity and privilege. But then you, you scope out your talents and what you, how you think you might be able to help that, that employer, and you, and you let them know what, to, what you hope to accomplish, and maybe if he likes it, there's a handshake and you've got a job. <laughs> the Christian ministry is not like that. The Christian calling in the kingdom of God is, is not like taking liberties to choose what you want to do. We are servants, and we are called, and He is Lord. And it's not up to us to specify or to describe the church 
of our liking, except as it is very much in agreement and congruent with what the Lord has for all of his churches in his kingdom. In other words, we have the liberty and the, the freedom of our will to seek what the Lord wants as our job descriptions as servants and not to limit that by any means. And that is what is called as the ordinary calling of a Christian. And especially as I read this text and as I've checked a number of other commentaries, it appears to me that this now is a text and passage dealing more with the leaders and especially elders and ministers. It's not merely a matter of being a servant. It, of course, it involves that. And the English Standard Bible has that, that rendering, the translation, it's for servants. But in my title and in my outline, I, I rather prefer the understanding that we are stewards because we are entrusted with a body of knowledge. We are entrusted with the Lord's will. And it's not ours. It loses nothing in the connotation that we're servants of righteousness, although we've backed off considerably from the, from the Greek doulos, which means slaves. We're slaves of righteousness. We are stewards. And to the steward belongs the task of being faithful to what has been given to them. Now, we're going to examine this again uh, in Matthew 25, and I, it's one of those areas in Scripture where you wonder, why is there a chapter break between 24 and 25? Uh, it's arbitrary, I think. But there's a blending of 24 and 25, the chapters. Because in 24, we're talking mostly about the second coming and the element of surprise, but then we slip into what's going to happen immediately on that day. On that day, there will be uh, a reckoning. Uh, and it's, it's a day of great rejoicing to... God's faithful, his faithful servants, his faithful stewards. And it's a day of reckoning, uh, but one of severe shame and uh, imputed, uh, reckoned guilt and condemnation to those who uh, have not known the Lord and do not love his ways. And that's why we call this faithful and unfaithful stewards. I make no apologies. I am picking on my own kind. Primarily in the crosshairs are ministers. Secondarily, and just peripheral to the crosshairs, are elders. Thirdly, are stewards, are deacons. Fourthly, are anyone who takes a leadership position in classrooms, teachers of all sorts, household heads, such as fathers and mothers who have children at home, teachers in the classrooms of areas of responsibilities, they have all been entrusted with a care of souls that is theirs in word and deed to be faithful in their stewardship. They will give account for everything that the Lord has given us in his word. There, there is no excusing. Uh, there is no excuse by ignorance. That's the context. The context here of our immediate text is the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is wrapping up his ministry. He knows that the cross is before him. He knows that he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knows he's come for redemption. In order to be uh, the Redeemer, the Lamb that, of God, that innocent Lamb that sheds his blood, he must be crucified. He cannot take his own life. That would be 
self-murder and suicide. He knows that his enemies are mounting and are planning and are scheming. This is why we just sang that psalm about the wicked. Always the wicked are, are restless. They hardly even know what they want because once they get what they want, they're not even content with what they have. But one thing they know, they detest God and his anointed one. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one. Jesus knows this. He's wrapping up his days in the flesh. He's nearing the end. He's approaching the cross. He knows that beyond the cross there lies his vindication because he was executed as a vile uh, sinner, a criminal, uh, an insurrectionist. The Lord Father will vindicate him by raising him from the dead on the third day and later ascending to his right hand in heaven, pouring out his Holy Spirit and thereby much energizing his church. That's the context of where we're going. And we're also nearing the end of the Jewish age, which age Jesus has come in the flesh to purify. As all the prophets of old said, that this one would purify the sons of Levi. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly thresh out his, his, uh, the winnowing floor of, of his house, of his barn. And he's done just that. Increasingly, his word has made a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, the believers and the unbelievers. Those who desire and will enter into the kingdom and those who despise and will reject the kingdom. Jesus has all along been bifurcating. He's separating light from darkness. He's separating righteousness from unrighteousness. He's separating truth from error. And he's still doing it despite the fact that it's going to cost him his life. And it will cost his disciples their lives. So for John, who lived, but he lived rather miserably in a, in a cell for the rest of his days. This is the end of the Jewish age. The Jewish people have now lapsed. Not all. We have the magnificent uh, prayers of Mary and Elizabeth. But the Jewish leaders representing, the Jewish leaders, the presbyters who represent the nation have now shown themselves inept at understanding the heart of the law concerning what God's righteousness is and His holiness demanded, a transcript of God's holiness as our confession says it. They, have, they are bankrupt and bereft of the true knowledge of God and holiness, adding to human traditions. And they are bereft of the gospel, not knowing what is being typified by all of those multiple sacrifices in the temple area. And missing the simplicity of Christ at the Jordan, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. Of all the prophets and Moses and every scripture, has attested to that Lamb of God in all ages. The bankruptcy of the Jewish state is complete. As far as its leadership goes, Jesus has now announced to woes that Jewish age is ending. The beginning of the Gentile age is upon us. And so he's now speaking of the, uh, of the last things, especially for the near-end Jewish state, but also for the end of the, of the Gentile Age. For as the Jews went under the guidance and ministry of Jehovah God, 
in the Old Testament, so goes our church, so goes all churches in the church age. The proposition here, the one main teaching you can take home after this lengthy introduction, I'm I'm sure it was taxing to some, but it's very necessary to to map out where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The, 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 The statement is this, that gospel ministers, those are stewards, gospel ministers are stewards that must remain watchful and faithful over Christ's flock until he returns. Christ will judge all his gospel stewards equitably, distributing rewards and punishments according to God's gracious covenant terms. Again, there's an outward ministry. It's in the visible church. The ministers, elders, deacons, leaders, are stewards. They, uh, in the main, if they, if they're building upon precious items, gold, silver, precious stones, the edifice goes up. The saints are adorned in holiness in their salvation. The bride is adorned. God is pleased. Some begin to use straw and stubble, worthless things, and some actually turn on the church to cripple or to derail her mission. And the Lord will deal with his servants in this way. First point, and I think there's just, I believe there's just two points, lengthy, but I'll I'll go quickly. The Lord will abundantly reward his faithful gospel stewards at his coming. I say this because, as you know, as you read your Bible, not every faithful man in Scripture is accorded his, uh, any sort of reward in his life. Some, yes. Some, not. This is of the Lord. He's sovereign. He, he leads his people and his church as, as he pleases. But at his coming, there will be an absolute and equitable and righteous judgment and reward. And the Lord himself will abundantly reward. This is, this is well beyond anything that you can attribute to in your imagination as to what it will be or any grace or any kind of treatment that God will do. Whatever you, whatever you can think, just put an exponent to the infinite power. It's got to be much more glorious than what you think. And we have not begun to even meditate or think about our inheritance. Otherwise, we would be the happiest people and we would be the least grumbling of all people in the world. We would not be a murmuring tribe in the wilderness. We would be exuberant and exuberant and exalting in joy and giving God thanks in all things. And that's what he calls us to do. I mean, that's Elder Jeremy's preaching in 1 Thessalonians 5. But the Lord will abundantly reward his faithful gospel stewards at his coming. What does a faithful and wise gospel steward look like? Well, it's, it's a minister. I'm, I'm, I'm Just like the commandments, I'm heading at the top of the commandment. I'm heading the top so that everything below uh, is, a, is attributed as a, in that genus as a servant and as a steward. But I'm heading for the top, which is a minister. A minister is an elder in the, in the Presbyterian Church in America who has been entrusted with the regular preaching of the Word of God and the sacraments, the seals and signs of God's covenant of grace. The elders are not. The minister is. There's a distinction. What is a faithful and wise gospel steward like? A minister who is, in, who is in, entrusted, and he is not a magistrate. A minister administers what has been entrusted to him. He 
interprets and applies what is in hand. He does not invent. He does not invent laws. He does, he, he does not dispense with any laws. He does neither add nor, nor subtract. And that's exactly what Jesus says in the last pages of this book, in the book of Revelation. Whoever adds, God will add them to the plagues of this book. You detract, remove from the rewards. A faithful steward. That's what he looks like. He is not a magistrate inventing new rules, setting new patterns of worship, setting new dogmas for your children and yourself, teaching people legalism, how to raise their children, because doesn't, God doesn't want you to, uh, to feed your baby a synthetic baby formula and stuff like that that's been tried. We are not magistrates. We are not creative. We are faithful. A steward. A steward has to be duly called of God to the ministry. No one, no one would dare announce to himself, oh, I'm going to just jump and be a Levit Levitical priesthood. That has to do with God. Nobody can just be a priest in the Old Testament. That's of God. God's calling. No one can just sally in and say, I'd like to be a high priest today. You need to be duly called to the office. You're placed by God to lead others in the flock. God himself, from before the womb, in the womb, the minister and the prophet is sanctified, and all of his life is conditioned to the purpose of his instruction and learning and various circumstances that he might be a profitable servant if he's duly called of God. The call extends well beyond when the presbytery gets a hold of him or a church. He's placed by God. He's placed by God to lead others in the church. And he's vested with the same authority and word and sacrament as Christ has and always has had in the church. It's Christ's authority and no other. If it were not Christ's authority, he would have no authority because the minister has no authority except as it is Christ's voice that he is uh, showing forth from the scriptures. The wise and faithful gospel steward perseveres. He perseveres faithfully. That is to say, by faith, trusting God, and wisely. And not perfectly, of course. He's still a sinner. And yet there is a connotation here that overall weight in the balances. He is set and anticipating that dictum of God, good and well done, good and faithful servants. If any minister can't say that in his own conscience, I mean experientially, then he has to stop and wonder if he's to be in the ministry. He, persever he perseveres faithfully and wisely in the calling despite hardship, persecution, mistreatment, and every wagging tongue. And he does so until the Lord either removes him from office by illness or he removes him off the face of this earth until death or until his second coming. He has, as a steward, a calling that is, not, is never revoked. His calling and election is sure and his office and the gifts and call, the calling of God are, are, are set. And if you read... The story of the, of the prophets of old, either they were taken up into heaven like Elijah or they, they died in office. There's no, retire, there's no retiring to Bermuda. 
What are we doing? And if we retire to Bermuda, it's because it's such a start of a Bible study or a church in Bermuda. What a faithful gospel steward is called to do is to feed the flock. Primarily, a shepherd is in charge of, of keeping the sheep safe and giving the sheep nutrition. And how, how that is done is by teaching them the, the diet out of God's cookbook. Where, where, where is God's cookbook? It's right here. The Bible is the whole counsel of God. And, and there's no minister that can say, well, what we need to do is we need to teach a portion of it. Oh, no, if we teach that, it's not, you know, we're going ups to upset our visitors. We're going to, we're going to grow a church if we teach them the whole, all. If we teach people who God really is, <sighs> sovereign, omniscient, almighty, unchanging, just to condemn sin, holy, but beautiful and, and righteous and and merciful and forbearing and forgiving sin. And, and by the way, we need to be converging on all those attributes that are in Christ as a Savior. All that God is in the Holy Spirit, we're conforming to that image in Christ. Feed the, God, the, the flock of God, the whole counsel of God. And uh, to bifurcate again, that includes law, which is what God asks of us in principle. And we can't do without his help. And gospel, all the promises, which we can't believe without his help. Law and gospel. Applying the word of God to the circumstances and time, to ourselves when we read the book, helping our children to understand the will of God. How does it apply? Little Sally, what does this mean? Honor your father and mother. How, what does that look like? What, what does it look like, Bobby, to love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor or even your sister as yourself. What, what does that look like? Ask the questions, help them to make sense of it. It's called applying the word of God. No minister is a minister preaching. No minister is a minister preaching unless he helps you. He ministers to you what this eternal truth means to you, the creature of time and space. You are a finite creature. Your circumstances are unique. You yourself are unique. And unless you appropriate that, truth into your belief set and into your practice set, the Word has done absolutely nothing for you. You need to learn how to receive the Word of God, have it lodged in your, in your heart, be thankful for it, believe it, obey it. And that's why ministers, in a, in a very feeble attempt, try to at least give some semblance of how these things apply in the preaching. No application of the Word of God. We've got some teaching and some help. All teaching is of help. No application, no preaching. That's the Reformed tradition. The Word of God is primarily here not merely to make us feel good, although it does make us feel good. I hope if we understand it, people are, are feeling very, very comfortable, very comforted, very hopeful, very joyful. As I just said, the abundancy, the, the abundant reward of the Christian, as I, I, I will reference again, the abundant reward of the faithful Christian is Christ himself. You are expecting your bridegroom, O bride. You are expecting the face of your beloved, the one who has loved you and died for you, has cared for you all the days of your life. That, my friends, is, is, is extremely comforting. 
But if we stopped at that and only spoke of the benefits of being a Christian, we would be remiss. We would be bad stewards. Because, because God also has us, as Paul says to Timothy, the scriptures are here for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. And if we're not on that track, we're not on a, we're not on a gospel track. We're not on a Christian track. And if the minister stops short of giving directives about what to believe and what to do, he's not on a Christian track, then he's not on a Bible track. Not at all. He's skirting some things, and you have to wonder why. Furthermore, he is to lead by some example. And of course, I, I bring to mind Moses, the meekest and humblest man alive in the world of his day who was disparaged by his own congregation, uh, who was blamed for all the trouble and hardship in the wilderness. They wanted to kill him. And what about the Lord? Uh, he suffered the same in the hands of sinners. They lead by example. And the best teaching is teaching by example. What's his demeanor? Does he indeed... Does he indeed persevere with sinners? Does he cover a multitude of sins? Is he forgiving? Does he pray for you? Does he care for you? Does he call you? Is he interested in you? So we need to care for God's flock as Christ does, knowing that that, you know, immediately it prompts the question. If we're, if we're to care for Christ's flock, all leaders, especially elders, but especially, especially ministers, then who is apt for such a calling? Who, who of us, says Isaiah, I am undone. Sure, I look great as a prophet here in, in, the, in Israel in the, in the 8th century before Christ. I sure look great. But I am a man that has unclean. I have unclean lips and I dwell among a nation of unclean lips. For I have seen the Lord. I have seen how holy he is, how holy it is. And now I am undone. Of ourselves, we are not sufficient. But because of God's grace, he has ordained the office of a minister, of an elder. And he, within him, we have all sufficiency, but especially forgiveness. And if we can't forbear with the flock, or if the flock can't forbear with a minister, we've got some serious issues to talk about. How does God care for his flock as Christ does? Lovingly, diligently, sacrificially, forgiving, forbearing, patiently instructing. He's open to questions. By the way, it pertains to the flock to ask questions of their leaders and not to come to them with a predetermined sentence of guilt, and especially not a predetermined sentence of guilt and impunity and the penal sanctions, such as shunning, such as, uh, as, as complaining and grumbling to others. You ask questions. You don't ask the questions of any other but the person who's bothering you. You don't seek any other intermediary. If, the, if an elder bothers you, go to the elder. If a minister's bother you, bother, go to the minister. He wants to see your pain. Not that he might joy, but that he might relieve it. And no one he's relieved it with a good and able answer. You cheat yourselves when out of cowardice, you don't go to the source of your misunderstanding. 
defending the flock from wolves. That's where the rod and the staff come in. There's nothing effeminate about a gospel minister. He is strong. He is David. He looks like a punk, but he's knocked out by a lion and a bear. He looks like he's nothing. But the Lord has made him a strong sledging machine to remove mountains because he's found his strength in the Lord. And he will save his flock from wolves. And he will bat them down. And he will also save the flock from the budding and jockeying of the stronger sheep who are always plying for position. They must be first. And if they're not first, then there's no other position they're interested in. What a faithful gospel steward is to expect, then, from his master when he returns is hope not deferred, but hope realized. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope realized is a, is a, is a fountain of, of, of life. And that's where we're headed. We, we're not going to marry some hag. You know, I, I used to, when I was young, I used to have a recurring nightmare that I would marry somebody against my will, whom I didn't... <laughs> it's a stupid nightmare, right? But I was a kid. I, I didn't know what... Well, I knew, I knew, well, I knew what was happening. According to the Roman Catholics, there's grace in the sacrament, and God will help you to love the person that you marry. Oh, wow. I was always afraid that my heart would not be in it. I, I, didn't, have to, I didn't have to have that fear, because God will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37. Hope realized. He, you will receive your master's blessing. No, At that point, no chiding. Oh, yeah, he'll mention your sins, but... Only is that which is in passing because he's glad to forgive you your sins for his own son's sake. All blessing. It's what we practice here. I might might ply into your conscience here, but when you leave, you always receive the blessing of the Lord. And he has the final word, not the announcements. That's why we want you to understand that the benediction is important. Carry that. You're going to need it. Because the last thing God will ever say to you in this temporal age, is that you're blessed. Do you understand? You're blessed. You'll receive the gracious reward of rule and increase of dominion. Right now you've got a little plot of land. What does it measure? About a thousand by a thousand. Maybe you've got a double lot somewhere. That's your dominion. You've got your house. Your wife has the kitchen. She set it up the way. You've got some dominion. Hopefully you're, you're a good store, steward over that dominion. But because you have governed your life according to the word of God, he's going to give you more. He's going to give you much more. He's going to, and we'll, we'll get into that in chapter 25. The gracious reward of, and, and of rule, a gracious reward of increase of dominion, all things. He will render to you all things. What does that mean? Well, let's just cut to the quick and say, that means whatever God wants him wants that to mean. He's going to be abundantly gracious to you. Let your imagination run riot with that expression. It's, it's there for you. He wants you to consider, oh, it's a surprise. Wow. Wow. Even then, he's got something. And it's good. Don't you love surprises? He's got a surprise. All things. All things especially all things proportional to your faithful contribution. 
as you have managed the creature yourself and creatures and the creation. And it's abundant because it's altogether gracious. All, there's nothing there's nothing of it that is not equitable because all in Christ is forgiven and all in Christ is provided by way of righteousness. But as the Holy Spirit has worked in you and you've appropriated the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit, then the Lord still receives the glory of it. Besides, you're going to take that crown, you're going to throw it right back down, and you're going to put it at his feet. The Lord will abundantly reward his faithful gospel servants, or stewards. The second point of the sermon is this, that the Lord will severely punish his unfaithful gospel stewards. When? There's a lot of, there's a lot of guys that are monking with the word of God. There's a lot of guys that are holding back, never preaching goodness. If they mentioned the word repentance, the halls would clear. What do you mean repentance? There are Bibles out there that, are, that specifically omit any mention of repentance as thinking that's, that's a legal that's a legal term as reference to the law, so we have to omit it. Let's not get that into the six steps of becoming a Christian, etc. I had to leave such a ministry. I was, I, was, I was a president in a division of one of their camps, and I said, this is, this is not the gospel. I'm stepping down. I'm stepping down. That's not faithful. He will reward his, he will, he will punish his unfaithful gospel stewards at his coming. What does an unfaithful gospel steward look like? Well, first of all, he's handling the gospel. In fact, he may be handling only promises and benefits and whatever. So he looks like he's got full gospel. Wow, this guy really has a clean gospel. He loves the gospel. Well, the, uh, the unfaithful gospel steward looks like this. He's the opposite of the faithful gospel steward. So you can run down the list that I just went through, just negate it. That's a shorthand version. Sins primarily by omission. Because if he's in the ministry, it's very easy to catch somebody saying something blatantly stupid and wrong. But if he says nothing and still leads by example in the wrong way, or if he doesn't actually preach, teach, and by an example contradict the teachings held by consensus of the church, he will quip them privately in the ear and by whispering. That's how it goes. And who can track that? Well, God does. He, he knows what's going on. Sins primarily by omission, also by commission. And uh, by commission is what we have in this passage. Here's how the Holy Spirit wants us to see where a, a gospel minister derails. First of all, he loses faith. That is to say, he stops trusting God. He doesn't commit himself fully. Paul says, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And that's what reasonable servants must do. It's only right that we serve God in sincerity and simplicity, and that's what we're called to do. But he loses faith, this derelict unfaithful gospel steward. He doesn't persevere. He says, well, what, what's the point here? What? So why am I losing out on so much of my life? This is, an this is more than inconvenience. This is, this is bitter. This cross has splinters. I thought it was, was going to don a, a, a gold cross that's polished and tampered at the edges. What's the point? Master's not coming back for a long time. I've got some time. Yeah, I've got some. I've got some time. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna coast. 
Who's coasting with a show of, re of religiosity? The Pharisees are coasting. The Sadducees are coasting. John is not coasting. John is a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's intent on purifying Israel back to, reforming Israel back to what the law truly says and back to what the gospel truly says. And as I mentioned before in the preaching, law and gospel are features of what must be presented before the throne of God. It's, it's, it's what's contained in the ark of God. The law, the tablets go before the mercy seat, which speaks of the blood. Law and gospel, when, when the gospel go forth, when the kingdom of God goes forth, the throne of the, of the king, the nose cone of the kingdom must involve law and gospel. That, my friends, is a rarity in the evangelical church in America today. Pharisees, Sadducees versus John. Disciples, they're faithful. What does he do then? Take an occasion for the flesh. He feeds the flesh, and the flesh begins to overcome any constraining, constraining graces, whether they be, even when they're external to the servant. The Lord constrains his servants. He doesn't have to be indwelling a Christian to constrain him from sin. There's a, 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 a great and powerful constraining influence in the church. Just by your attending here, you're being sanctified externally. But as you begin to feed your, your, your sinful nature, then you begin to give occasion to envy and strife and jealousy and hatred and murder and adultery and fornication and drunkenness. And he begins to mistreat his fellow servants. How does Jesus arrive at that? Well, look what's happening with his own ministry. He begins to, himself a minister, he begins to mistreat other elders and ministers. And he begins to lord it over the other sheep. How does he mistreat? By slandering, by gossiping, by shunning, by disrespecting, by quarreling, by contradicting, by not loving, by not encouraging, by not greeting by the removing himself from the communion, which ought to be Trinitarian in nature and sincere in bonds of love in the Holy Spirit. Mistreating by persecuting. Mistreating by literally beating. Again, Jesus goes to the capital uh, of the offense. Beating, unjustly censuring, maiming, killing. Basically, what? Why is Jesus, why is Jesus saying this? Because that's what Israel's done with the, the, all, of the, all of the holy men that were sent to Israel. That's the parable of the tenants. He sent the messengers and they persecuted and mistreated some and then finally he sends his son. He says, ah, oh, this is the heir. Let's kill him and, and then we'll have the whole show. What a deal. Israel's treatment of the most of most of God's faithful mother. Yeah, they did believe some. There were good kings. Extreme minority. He dissociates from holy fellowship in the church, from worship services. God calls us. I don't know. I, he found something else better to do than come to the worship. I'm talking about leaders who vowed their strength to the church as far as the Spirit would help them. He dissociates from, from prayer. We have occasions of prayer. You know our prayer calendars. We have mornings. We have, once a month we have a special second evening service, you know, 20, 25 minutes of prayer. We have another one, about 40 minutes of prayer once a month, led under uh, Elder Thomas. 
Of course, you know, the, the, the paradox here is they have plenty, plenty of things to say about what's wrong with the church, but they won't come to prayer. Without prayer, this church is going nowhere. It's, it's nowhere. Nowhere. Dissociates from holy fellowship in the church, from the charity of the church. They don't encourage new people to, to persevere. And I think they're kind of ticked when new people join because they don't like the direction of the church and so they want to steer it. They want to get that nose pointed in another direction. Uncharitable. Fellowship does not primarily mean food and drink, honestly. Although food and drink is an expression of friendship, the table is, the, is probably the warmest expression of love and, 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 and sharing of gifts. We ought to love that occasion. But it's way, way substandard to the fellowship of worship and free exchange at worship. And then he begins in his flesh, having fed the flesh, to grow worse and worse. He grows in gluttony, which is an abuse of fellowship at the table, and drunkenness, which is another abuse. He becomes self-centered, he becomes selfish, he, be, he leads a comfortable life. He can't be bothered with sinners. These people across the street, I don't know what they're... Have you seen the people across the street? Some people believe that, and I know ministers that would believe, if you give them a truth serum, they'll tell you these people are not able to be Presbyterians. Meaning what? That we are not a Christian church because Christ calls all kinds of people. And their flesh is strong, so they begin to become, they begin to take up errors, not even knowing that they are an error, an error by glosses or by, by compromises in their theology. If they could really be audited sincerely, they would, you would find them in error. And because they grow arrogant in their, in, their, in their sinful nature and in their flesh, that error begins to make a crack in the fellowship of the church. And they, then they become schismatic. They will leave a church because they, they don't see instruments that they want in the church. They will leave a church that Christ has reformed with his own ministry and blood over something that has nothing to do, essentially, with the calling of God in Christ. A saxophone does not make for a Christian church. And we've heard of examples of that in reformed churches. It allows others to mistreat his fellow servants. Now, here, here's, here's a sin by omission. Not that you are strong in the flesh. Not that you have become unwary. You're still doing your work, but you're allowing others to go about mistreating God's servants. You turn a blind eye to click formation. You turn a blind eye to little groups that are becoming, they're following the schism. You, you greatly excuse unreconciled parties, think, well, I'm just covering over a multitude of sins. No, you have a duty to attempt to reconcile those who, uh, in the church who are estranged. And you can, you know, and not, not that they're going to be brilliant lovers and dance all night under the stars. You can, you know, in heaven they will, if they're Christians. But you have a duty. You can't let that go on in Christ's church. The sheep are being hurt. The leaders are being hurt. Their families are being hurt. But excuses cannot be 
you have no excuse. You won't correct. You won't reprove. Well, if you do that, people will leave the church. Other churches don't do that. Other churches are welcoming and happy. They have a, a happy ministry. Everybody happy. Correction, reproof, training, and righteousness. Then you become a man pleaser. You fear man greatly. Well, if I, if I, you know, if, if, if I preach this, first of all, I'm condemning myself because I know I'm not perfect. If I preach this, they're, they're going to call me a hypocrite because I don't measure up to this. You're right, Lou. Because <laughs> that's the wonder of preaching. You have to preach this to yourself first and know that if you try, if you try to justify yourself here, you are self-condemned. You have nothing to say from this pulpit. You can't be a man pleaser. You can't even please yourself. You have to die to self, take up the cross, follow Christ. You must not fear the face of man. It is a certain snare. It is a certain snare. And then you begin to take up slander and gossip. The Bible says it's very clear, do not take up a complaint, any complaint. It doesn't say the complaint to Presbytery. It says, don't take up a single word that is accusatory of the character or the practice of a minister, except by the testimony of two or three. And let it be assured, and then you have the formal channels. Then you say, okay, now you go to that person from whom you're estranged, and you tell them directly, I don't want to hear a single syllable out of your mouth. And if you allow that to go on, you will certainly bring the fire of God on this, on this sanctuary. You will bring this place down. Take up another slander gossip regarding an elder. It better be in good order. You fear God, even if at the cost of your life. Compromises on church discipline for the sake of unity or growth in numbers. That's not the that's not the church. That's God's growing. Of, he's, God is not interested in, in growing a tower to heaven in the style of a babel. That's been tried. Human effort, human pleasure, fear of man, the doctrine of man. That's babel. Church discipline, that's, that's just our duty. We vowed to do that. What an unfaithful gospel steward then is expected what, 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 what can he plan on? What can he expect from his master? The faithful steward has hope and, and joy and, and, for, and liberty, and he's looking for righteousness. He's looking to be intimate with Christ, and, and he's going to have brothers and sisters. There's all manner of wonderful missionaries and, 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 and glowing saints throughout all ages. You know your Bible. All these that have proved faithful from, from Hebrews chapter 11, they're your friends. They adorn, they adorn the palaces of God as, as trophies of, of God's grace in Christ. But what will the unfaithful gospel steward expect from his master? Surprise. Shock. What? Oh, no. Disillusionment. All of his life he's been illusioned. He's been under a grand illusion. And that bolt of lightning comes and takes away the shroud of his 
fantasy. And he realizes that he is undone, that he has been measuring people all along by his tiny, tiny measure and canon, and not God's. Surprise and judgment for his lapsed faith, for his unjust treatment of the master's other servants, he will be condemned regardless of how much he wants to scream gospel, he will be condemned as a covenant breaker. How do you, how do you know that? Well, the, the Greek word here about uh, cutting him in pieces, I don't like that translation, guys. The Greek is, is clear that he's cut him in two, meaning that that's what Abraham did with the, with the animal sacrifices there when he covenanted with Jehovah. Jehovah had Abraham cut the pieces in two. Why? Because you cut berit, a covenant. Berah, a, a covenant, berit. You're cutting a cutting. And the whole thing, the whole nature of a covenant is, is cutting a deal. We use that expression today in the English just the same. And the, the Lord passed through the cut pieces in two, in two pieces. All those animals were cut in pieces. All the blood everywhere, all the guts everywhere. Jehovah passed through as a, as, a, as a smoldering flame and fire. Basically saying, may this be my person and because I'm giving my word that I will accomplish this covenant of grace and I will fulfill its terms. I am the faithful Jehovah and I am passing through and I've cut a covenant with you and these animals are cut so that you're not cut. The cut animals are a substitute for you being cut. But if you break covenant and you don't have that cutting in your place, you'll be cut in two. That's in a manner of expression that you owe him your blood, your life. Otherwise, you would have the life of Jesus, which is the gospel. Jesus is a substitute for all sinners who trust him for the blood that they owe, the life that they owe. If you're a Christian, Christ has paid the debt. But then that life will appear in you as a servant. Not perfectly, not, not per we still sin. In thought, word, and deed, we confess it. But as the, as the scripture says, as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to wash us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it also says if we walk in the light, we confess sin. But then we repent because the scripture says if we walk in the light. That involves leaving our sin, and that's called repentance and walking in the light. That needs to be explained to churches these days. Repentance unto life is a requirement that needs to be preached. You must repent. And I'm saying now, repent from all sin, turn to God. Walk with Him. Walk humbly with our God. Do, love mercy. Love justice. Walk humbly. Micah 6.8. He will be condemned as a covenant breaker and as a hypocrite. Having a form of godliness but denying the most important attributes of God. Loving kindness, mercy, truth, equitable judgment, perseverance, patience with sinners, Unfaithful gospel stewards are not only lost to hell, but they will be in the most severe part of hell. This is why the gnashing of teeth and the gnawing of tongues, it's impossible for us to conceive. The joy of heaven, 
And it's impossible to conceive the torment, the shame, and the pain. But it is severe, excruciating torment. And it'll be not only in soul, but eventually upon the, second, uh, upon the resurrection, all flesh will be resurrected. So spirit and body will be once again rejoined at the last day, and both will be brought into their inheritance of Christ, or the punishment of Satan. Excruciating pain in body and soul. And which of you, having burned yourself mildly on a hot stove, can take this warning lightly? Let me conclude. Gospel ministers are stewards. They must remain faithful and, and, and watchful over Christ's flock until he returns. Christ will judge all his gospel stewards equitably, distributing rewards, magnificent rewards, abundant rewards, joyful rewards, surprises. But he also will have punishments, surprises again, shocking surprises, disillusionments, according to God's infinite and omniscient mind, and according to the covenant of the gospel, which is a gracious covenant, which faithful servants keep and unfaithful servants break. Now, the, by way of application, elders, teachers, parents, you know, look to your own faith. Look to your own practice first. The general rule is be very severe and very critical of your own. And then open your mouth to help others. Hopefully not as critical as you, you, know, you can be. I can be very critical. I apologize publicly here. If I've offended you, please see me afterwards. But if I've corrected you and you're recalcitrant, I'll have, to re I'll have to remind you of that as well. There's equity. We have office. We have responsibility and authority. We can't shun that. We can't pretend that God has not called ministers to be ministers. We just can't do that. Well, we can, but then we'd be in trouble. Perseverance in faith, repentance, new obedience. Can you please remember that? It's so easy. Faith, repentance, new strength. That's the normal Christian life. And then you need to take comfort. And whatever you're doing as a leader in the church, I don't care if you're setting out the offering plates. Nothing that you do in the name of the Lord is in vain. If you go to work, and you do a good job in your office, if you do it in the name of the Lord, that is not in vain. The Lord will reward you for the dominion you showed in your tiny 8 by 10 cubicle, or whatever we got going. I don't even know if we, anybody has any cubicles anymore. I don't know what we got. Take comfort in your work in the Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing that you do in the name of the Lord, extending a cup of, of water to one of these servants of God, well, that's... The equity of that small gift. And I'm reminded the deacons do it for me all the time, by the way. And I thank the deacons for the water. You do that, as deacons should do, because they're servants. You do that and you, and you, gain, the, you gain the reward of a prophet. Does that equate anything that you've seen in your life as a gracious manager, a gracious, a gracious reward, uh, review of your of your work? No. The Lord is abundantly kind. So you can take comfort in all that you do because it's going to be, sometimes it's going to be hard work. 
and people are not going to appreciate it. And people are going to not, not understand what you do or why you understand it or why you do the things you do. But you keep in mind, the best thing you'll hear from your beloved Christ is this. He will say to you, well done. Doesn't matter if no one else in your whole life has told Jeremiah, nobody told Isaiah, nobody told you. Well done in your life. They sawed you in two for crying out loud. They thought you were the covenant breaker. Or Isaiah, bled to death on the teeth of a saw. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's sufficient reward. How could that be? I've been a sinner. Everything I've done, I've done badly. He's a gracious master. He's a gracious judge. You're being judged under the covenant of grace. Crucify then all sin. Anything that displeases this Lord. Don't feed your flesh. Admit that it's pleasant and hate yourself for it. Hate sin and ask God to give you grace to hate everything that he hates. If you won't love your enemies, if you won't love people who spit on you when you come in through those doors and look to their good, you have no reason to think you're a Christian. You need to repent. The first thing you do when you come through those doors, you get slapped by a deacon. You want to pull out your gun and kill him? You better think twice whether you're a Christian or if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount or taught it. You need to love your enemies. And that means maybe getting out of your chair, walking four steps, and greeting a visitor. I know it's a huge sacrifice. Am I truly a Christian? No one can possibly exaggerate the shame, the pain of hell. I couldn't possibly have enough zeal here. I couldn't possibly lay in enough admonition and warning and heat. And besides, it's not... There's no point scaring you, because nobody gets scared into heaven, they say. Well, but uh, the, some saints are, are admonished, and they avert many more painful sins and mistakes. And there is correction for those who love the Lord, thinking that they are that much displeasing, that God hates sin that much, that he will take a, 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 an initially noble creature and subject him to eternal flames. That says a lot about God and how about you should hate the corruption of your very being by sin. One cannot possibly ex exaggerate the shame and the pain of, of hell. And here you are warned. And, and, but, but the good thing is today is the day of salvation. Today you may turn from sin. You, you, you have the ordinances, you have the, the promises, you have the gospel. You have a church that will uphold as far as I can see. As far as I can see, we... We're doing things to equip the saints and to help you in every way to, to forward in, into, into heaven. We're not taking up human traditions. I hope we're not. If we are, please talk to your elders, talk to me. We don't want to adulterate the word of God. We want to be faithful here. And so, my friends, today is the salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and your house, you'll be saved. Turn from sin. Turn to the Lord. Follow him in your obedience. Faith, repentance unto life, and new obedience. And that's the gospel. The Lord Jesus has been given as a gift of God 
that all who believe in him would be saved. You do that and you rejoice in God, your maker and self and savior. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we have preached long on a very difficult but very important passage. We pray that you would bless it. That is to say that you would see the fruit of it. Help us, Lord, to remain faithful and prudent, persevere in all things. We know this is your will for us in Christ Jesus, so do it for your own glorious namesake. And we will praise and praise and praise you forever. Amen. Let's have an offering, please. Amen.